when we come on a retreat like this, I think there's a very understandable way we might be viewing the process, born of a certain degree of hope and perhaps a little wishfulness. Um, the kind of idea of our spiritual practice, our meditative journey or our retreat, that it would be a kind of a, a reasonably clear and direct linear movement from pain, chaos, confusion and distress to ease, peace, clarity, enjoyment. And um, that's kind of you know, understandable that we might be interested in that, that we might be looking for that. And yet what we find again and again is that this journey, the journey of our life, which is what we're engaged in, it's a journey of opening, a journey of going through processes and cycles that call on us to make a response in which we're willing to turn towards our life, willing to open to the truth of what we are encountering. And we sometimes can get into sort of measuring our practice according to whether it feels good or whether it looks good as like the kind of experiences we should be able to or we'd like to be able to report to our friends at home after the retreat about, you know, sort of sort of wonderful, blissful, cosmic or whatever kind of things we might have imagined we would like to experience where we might... Uh, feel that this would tell us that something useful or something beneficial is happening. But there's another way we could look at it and uh, I think illustrated well by a story from a retreat that was taking place in California quite a few years ago taught by among a few teachers including Jack Cornfield who's one of the senior teachers from our the Insight Meditation uh, community and tradition. And uh, a few days into this retreat uh, Jack came into the staff room and one of the staff asked about one of their friends who was participating and said, Jack, how's my friend doing? Jack responded, he said, oh, your friend's doing very well. And he, rather pleased by this, asked, what about my other friend? How's she? Oh yeah, she's doing very well too. And uh, another friend, um, sorry, another staff member overheard this and asked about their friend and yeah, they're doing well, very well. And so the first staff member asked Jack and said, Jack, what exactly do you mean by doing very well? Jack smiled. He responded, oh, they're still here. <laughs> so if you're wondering how you've been doing or how you are doing, there's a simple way to resolve that question. What it means for us to be here is immense, in fact. Not just existentially, we could say, to be here, but actually just to be here, just to meet our life. It's not always easy for us here in meditation, on retreat, because it's not always easy in our life. And life is what's here. We kind of think we might have come here to get away from it, or to fix it, or to reorganize it, but in fact, we're here to meet it. Because that is the place in which all that is possible for us can be accessed, can be discovered. And we, we've seen and we've talked about the way we respond to our experience by contracting, pulling away or pushing away sometimes and how there's this kind of tendency to want to kind of control or manipulate what's happening. 
it's really interesting to just acknowledge this, as we've done and we've spoken about in different ways, that this tendency to kind of want to remove a certain aspect of our experience, that which is difficult, it has the effect of kind of hardening us or deadening us or numbing us. At some level, we it seems make a not entirely conscious choice to not feel. And there's reasons why we've made that choice. Initially, probably because we've experienced things that were more intense than we could handle, that were overwhelming to our system. And when we're really young as infants and our capacity for holding experience is really undeveloped, we're dependent on others for that. And they are inevitably not there perfectly. Even if we were fortunate to have a relatively healthy and supportive parenting experience, they're not able to be there for us always. And sometimes we will be overwhelmed by the intensity of what's there. And sometimes if our early experience wasn't that fortunate, there can be a lot of that kind of experience. And so we associate feeling and sensate experience and contact with being overwhelmed. And when we're an infant, overwhelm, it's kind of like the, the circuit board of our brain gets fried. And it's, it's, it's like being annihilated, essentially. It's death in a consciousness that has no ability to project existence in the future. just like It's almost like dying. It's that extreme. And so, of course, something in us says, no, I don't want that to happen to me. And it's appropriate. It's a necessary response that we learn, that we develop when we're very, very small. And yet the effect of it, the impact of it is that we actually get caught in a pattern of responding to things assuming we can't handle them, assuming we don't have that capacity because there was a time when that was true. And the effect of it to, to kind of to block out or to keep separate, to not feel that which we fear might overwhelm us, which threatens us in that way, it has a profound effect upon how we experience our lives. Because we're incredibly sensitive human beings. We're very sensitive organisms. We feel life deeply. We are touched in so many ways. Our hearts, our minds, our bodies touched. And it's not easy to be sentient. It's not easy. So this, this tendency to look for ease, to look for comfort, leads to a kind of a, a numbing because we can't just disconnect from one thing that's difficult. We can't just withdraw from that which we find uncomfortable. When we disconnect, we disconnect from everything. When we withdraw, we withdraw from everything. And we can sometimes imagine how it works. It's like as if we were trying to push something away in the world, and we did it by pushing on the planet. What's going to happen if you push on the Earth? Is it going to go anywhere? Probably not. But we actually get pushed away from it. If we push really hard, it's actually we that move away. Even if it's like one particular thing we're trying to push away, we actually withdraw. That's the effect of that mechanism. And in that moving away, in that becoming disconnected, while we might get some distance and some, it seems like, protection from that which is difficult, threatening and potentially overwhelming for us, we also start to become 
distant from and no longer have access to, no longer feel the touch of that which is which is bright, which is open, which is sweet, which is beautiful, which is nourishing in our experience and in our life and around us. And we feel that as a loss of a sense of quality, as a loss of a sense of that which we're really looking for. Which we've known, because we've known that intimacy, we've known that contact, we've known that sweetness. And of course, we continue to know such experiences and moments in our lives. But all too often experience or perceive them as as fleeting or unsubstantial or not quite meeting us fully. Because to really allow ourselves to be touched by that which is beautiful in life is also a scary thing for us. It's also kind of threatening because it slightly undoes us. It takes us out of the, the kind of the structures and the forms that we've created to try and maintain a sense of safety, a sense of security, a sense of predictability in the midst of a life that is unpredictable and unfolding according to its own lawfulness, not according to our particular preference or inclination. And so this process of meditation, whether we want it to or not, brings us into contact with where we are, with what's actually here for us. And some of that is the places and the patterns of contraction, of tightness, of distress that's become structured into our physicality, into our very bodies, that's become structured into our mental patternings and responses. And encountering these patternings is actually painful or distressing or uncomfortable for us. So our first response is, no, I don't want to feel that. It's pretty much inevitable. It's, in a sense, it's natural. And yet it's not what serves our deeper well-being. And so this process of coming into contact of, of feeling our experience has an element to it that at some level we're kind of, I would say, cautious about and possibly um, more than cautious about. Like, mm, I'm really not sure if this is a good idea. As we consciously inhabit this feel, feeling, knowing experience we call body, heart and mind, as we inhabit it, there's a, there's a kind of a moistening, there's a kind of a softening, there's a kind of a lubricating that begins to happen. Because we're not so much escaping our life, escaping our experience, we're actually starting to enter into it more deeply. And each moment, and each place in which we come into contact more fully, more deeply in that way. It's like it brings a moistening, it brings a softening to what has become dry or arid, what has become hard or rigid or ossified because we haven't been inhabiting it. It's like the the very aliveness of our existence is carried and circulated through that attention. And if that intent, if our attentiveness leaves a field of our experience, such as our body, then the body actually, it's like taking water away from a living thing. It struggles to survive, to be at ease, to be well. And that 
withdrawal that we do as a protective mechanism initially, unconsciously, without even realizing it, in trying to create a protective, a protected space, we in fact create an enclosure, enclosed space. It's like we become imprisoned within that patterning. And we feel that, we feel that, we know that something isn't as it needs or should be. We tend to think the problem is in the things that are happening. But actually it's the unconscious, habitual and compelling dynamics we react to them from and with. And I think this is a really important thing for us to contemplate, to reflect upon. What it means to enter into our experience fully. Some years ago when I was teaching a retreat in um, Massachusetts at the Insight Meditation Society, I was going for a walk there, down to the in, through the woods, and there's some lovely sort of woods and small lakes around in that area of uh, Massachusetts. And as I was walking down this path, I saw in front of me, a few steps ahead, suddenly, and stopped. There was a snake on the path. And I immediately, I was both fascinated and kind of scared. Because we don't have snakes in New Zealand, where I come from, so this is a rare beast to me. And, um, and it looked quite like a large one, like it looked like it was about that, that thick, you know, so quite a substantial being. And I stopped, and I kind of thought I should probably back off. And then I thought, but I really want to see it a bit closer. And it wasn't moving, so I took another step. And at the same time as I was doing this, of course, my mind was adverting to all these stories and the, the Buddha's teachings about snakes and how, you know, it's possible to confuse a snake with a rope. And that's really problematic. Yeah. It's also possible to confuse a rope with a snake. And that makes you feel rather foolish. But you don't want to get it wrong because... Uh, Anyway, it makes you pay attention to think about this, if the snake in itself wasn't enough. And as I got closer, I realized actually it wasn't quite what I thought. It was a snake. But in fact, what it was, was a snake skin. The snake had left its skin behind on the track, on the path. And it was very interesting in that moment for me, just to think, what on earth would you do that for? Because we know, kind of, don't we, actually, if we think about it, what's involved. A snake is one of those creatures that has this beautiful protective skin with scales that's hard and strong and, and, and protects it from harm. But by the very fact that it's hard and strong in the way that it is, wrapped all around it, the snake inside can't grow. It's limited by that. And every year, in order to stay alive, that snake has to get out of its skin. Every year. And you know, as I thought about it, it can't come out with another skin on that's just as tough because it will be just as tight and there'll be no growing going on. It's got to come out of that skin kind of, I don't know, pink and juicy or somehow, <laughs> you know, stripped of that protection and probably for a little while really vulnerable. Halfway out of your skin is not when you want an eagle to come past if you're a snake. Really, not. But if you don't do that, you die. That's story one aspect of the life of this creature. And so I found myself really just contemplating what it is for us as human beings to have to come, to have the courage 
to start to come out of those hard protective shells and skins which we've established with good cause at the time we did so, but which become limiting and binding and constrictive of our life, our heart, and our capacity to connect and enjoy and celebrate. So, there's something here in this process for us of the, the, the courage it takes to inhabit that which is not easy for us to feel. To see this process of being hard on others or on ourselves, on our body, how we tend to judge and blame as a way of trying to actually push away experience. Blaming others, blaming ourselves, sometimes being hard on our body as we can be so often, expecting it to have fulfilled some kind of idea of what we thought it should be or would have liked it to be. And yet, as we just start to give it attention, we start to feel the life that's here, the sensitivity that's here. And we start to see how this process of actually moving away from what's uncomfortable reinforces itself. Having moved away from the body into our head, as we discover ourselves when we come on retreat, we realize, wow, I'm really a lot in my thinking. I'm not so much in my body. As we come into the body, if what we find is uncomfortable and that pr prompts us to go back out of that into our head, it simply reinforces this patterning. It reinforces this kind of disconnect and the sense of being caught within, constricted within, a protective mechanism that binds us. And so we're asked in the context of this practice to start to honor the full range of our human experience, including that which we find uncomfortable. To open to that which we find enjoyable is sometimes challenging for us too, but equally to open to that which is not easy. There's something we have to learn in these places. And this the bottom line of what pain is saying to us is actually really interesting to, to reflect upon. It arises for many reasons. It can be to do with injury, it can be to do with illness, it can be to do with, in meditation, it can be to do with our posture, just sitting in one place for long enough gets uncomfortable. And it's interesting, that, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever thought about or had the thought, uh, you know, meditation, I get uncomfortable because I have to sit in one place in this strange meditation posture or in these kind of uncomfortable chairs. But I tell you, if you sit in a really, uncom really comfortable chair, the most expensive chair you can get without moving, it won't take that long before it gets uncomfortable. If you really pay attention, you'll see this happen. In fact, if you lie on the most expensive mattress you can get and don't move... After a little while, you'll get uncomfortable. Actually, if you stay there long enough, and this happens tragically for older people who cannot move for some reason or another because of their health and ageing, actually your skin starts to break down. Your, your tissue can't sustain just being in constant contact under your own body weight. It won't survive it. And discomfort is part of what tells us to move, so it has a place for that. Of course, we're nowhere near that 
degree of what's actually happening for 40 minutes sitting on a cushion here. But we tend to think and act out that movement and there's a kind of a restlessness, there's a kind of an agitation, there's a kind of a... (laughs) And what we notice is as soon as we start moving in response to all of that, something else comes up and something else comes up and we keep moving, we keep moving. And that moving is actually distressing. (coughs) Excuse me. So to actually start to meet what's here, to turn towards it. When I was traveling in in India in my uh, 20s, really in the beginning of exploring spiritual practice, I had the opportunity to spend a little time working in Calcutta with a charity called Calcutta Rescue, which was providing free medical services to the street people who live in that city. And it's a it's an amazing place. Uh, I have a strong connection to it. My, my grandmother is from Calcutta. She's Bengali, and so I met her for the first time on that trip. Um, and I also worked in this... Uh, this medical clinic, just as an unskilled volunteer helper. I was not really doing anything medical, but from one of the medical people who was treating some of the, the people afflicted with leprosy, I'd, I learned something that was quite shocking to me and stays with me really to this day. Because I have, and maybe you also, the association with leprosy is this horrible disfiguring disease that makes bits of your body fall off and ugh, scary, you know. And actually, that's not what leprosy does. Very interesting. Leprosy is a kind of, um, I think it's a viral, but actually I'm not sure, it's an infectious agent that destroys the nervous tissue so you can't feel pain. And the, the condition of most people afflicted by it who are affected is people who are poor, uneducated, living in unclean conditions who cut themselves. They don't feel it. It doesn't hurt. They burn themselves. They don't feel it. It doesn't hurt. It gets infected and starts to swell. They don't feel it. It doesn't hurt. And then they lose whatever it was that was infected because of the effect of the infection. It didn't hurt. And the single thing that would make the greatest difference to the life of a person with leprosy in those conditions would be to feel pain. And it really gives a different relationship it seems to me to the fact that our bodies still do at least I imagine for most of us ah okay um yeah wow maybe I could forgive this body for the pain it experiences because it's saying something really clear and it's not a message we like to hear but what it's saying is this pay attention here that's what it's saying Pay attention. It's really good at getting us to pay attention here. But we don't want to because it hurts and I'd rather not feel it. So we try and avoid paying attention here. But if we do and as we are able to, we realize that's the thing I need to do to decide, is there some danger here? And if I'm experiencing pain in my body, I need to pay attention to see, am I hurting my body by sitting here like this? Because I could be. It's not impossible. It's not mostly what's likely to be happening here, but if it is, I'd better find out. And so sometimes it's appropriate to change our posture, to say, oh, actually, that's enough. I'm not sure if this is putting too much pressure on me. And I'll try it out and explore with some gentleness and respect. 
And other times you might have a sense, actually, this really isn't going to harm me. My nose is itching. It's really unpleasant. But I'm confident, 100%, this is not a medical issue. It's not going to result in any long-term damage. But the urge to want to make it go away is immense. And sometimes just, oh, can I breathe? Okay. Yeah, I've checked it out. This isn't dangerous. Can I just practice being with this? Because all of us, there are going to come times when we encounter pain and it's in a situation where we can't just adjust our way out of it. We can't just do something to make it go away. Perhaps some of us will have encountered that place already in our lives. It's not easy. And yet it's part of what we get for having a system that can let us know if something's going wrong. It doesn't always get it right. But we need that capacity to check, to see what's going on in our experience. And yet because of that, we can spend our whole existence, it seems, completely concerned with making sure that nothing ever feels uncomfortable for me. That I never encounter that which is uncomfortable, scary, difficult. And to ask ourselves sometimes, I think a really useful question, and to come back to it if you've asked it before, you know, how much of my life, how much of my activity, how much of what I'm engaged with in my mind is about avoiding what I fear? About staying away from anything which may be in some way uncomfortable to me? Because we can lose our life in that process while still living it. It can be lost to that desperate attempt to avoid something which is intrinsic to our life, which we can't avoid. Because we all have a body and a heart and a mind. And interestingly, that process of trying to avoid it and the contraction and the distress that comes with it is profoundly painful. Mark Twain apparently once said, Almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. But the stress and the worry and the fear about them, that becomes our worst experience often. When something difficult happens, we can actually deal with it. We can find, okay, either I'm annihilated, in which case, well, end of my particular problem. I don't know what goes on after that, if anything, but the issue I might have if I'm annihilated is gone. Anything less than that, I can respond to it there. Until it happens, I can't do that because it hasn't happened. And what I need to understand is that so much of what's happening fools us. Fear, and this is kind of really useful to know, to understand, fear tells us a story about what is going to happen in the future, as if it's going to happen, when in fact it may not. But it tells us a story about the future, and yet it's always an experience happening in the present. And because we try and deal with it in the future where it hasn't happened, we fail completely to resolve it. And even if we can figure out the way to avoid that thing happening, the very tendency of the fear will be then to think of the next thing that needs to be avoided once we've avoided this thing. It never comes to an end. But if we turn our attention back, oh, this is fear. Oh, wow. Can I meet this? Can I open to this? Can I let myself feel let myself feel the ground. Let myself feel the experience. Breathe with it. 
It's an unpleasant experience right here and now. That's what fear is. It's a really unpleasant experience. It's designed to be unpleasant, so it'll get your attention. So you'll check and see, is there any danger right here? Not is there some danger tomorrow or next year. I mean, eventually we're actually going to die, all of us. So in one sense, there's danger out there, yeah. But we've known that all our life. One day it will happen. But if it's not happening right now, we don't need to be oppressed by that reality. As if it might be going to happen unless we do something. Coming in to the immediacy of the experience allows us to find some space with it. If we don't, what tends to happen is that it hardens into anger. It becomes blaming or attacking, judging ourself or judging another, rejecting ourself or rejecting another for whatever we did or didn't do, whatever they did or didn't do that has caused me to experience this which I do not wish to experience. And of course underneath that there could be so much sorrow and grief and pain about what has happened that we don't wish to experience didn't wish to experience and yet to acknowledge that this is a part of our life your life my life every life there is no life that does not include this to actually open to that and just say oh wow yeah I really don't wish it that way but it's how it is to not think I should wish it this way or like it we don't have to like it I don't like it when it hurts I don't know anybody who likes it when it hurts but actually opening to that fact, oh yes, it's like this. There's a kind of a tenderness that comes with that. There's a kind of a tenderness where we, oh yeah, yeah, it's so. And we can start to see that although the story and the situation can feel and have its very particular personal aspect to it, at the same time as that there's something profoundly universal about the nature of the experience that we're in, about what it means to be a human being. The experience of fear, of isolation, of loneliness, of shame, of stress, of sorrow, of frustration, anxiety, sadness, these things we know as human beings. They're shared, they're part of our common territory. And just, yeah, we don't like it. We don't want it. But, oh, it's like this. Something about softening and opening into this is so important for us. And the Buddha spoke of this as one of the fundamental things to reflect on, to give consideration to, to contemplate, to allow ourselves to be conscious of. And he spoke about this in terms of body, heart and mind. He talked about birth, ageing, sickness, death. This is a kind of classical formulation. And it's like this body subject to birth. Not an easy process, whether one gets squeezed out through a narrow opening or pops out unexpecting to have come into the world right now, according to someone else's decision. Either way, it's not an easy thing to go through. And to go through the process at a bodily level, just of the fact that, yeah, we get for about, you know, 
maybe 20 years, the body's kind of growing. And if we're fortunate to have relatively good health, it might be functioning pretty well most of the time. And after that, it starts to slowly for the first 10 years after that, up till probably around 30, it goes slowly. And then it seems to just accelerate. And that's slowly not quite working as well as it did. And then more and more quickly not working as well as it used to. And that's the nature of it. We all have a body like that. Aging. And in fact, although one of the classic translations, sickness, the more useful translation is, is, is another word. I was always surprised when I heard this because the Buddha tends to be very methodical in how he articulates all of the teaching. And uh, I always thought, well, I got sick long before I experienced aging. I remember having the flu when I was a kid and it was horrible. So it makes sense that we'd call that unpleasant and difficult. But why doesn't it come before aging in the order that he's given birth, aging, sickness, death? And yet actually those kind of sicknesses that we get better from, that's not what's being pointed to here. It's the kind of sickness that happens that we don't get better from. And a better word to translate it is actually decay. Birth, aging, decay. Ouch. Death. We get that, don't you? You can feel decay. It's like a, it's a couple of my teeth are gone. You know, Most of me still here. Not all of it works that well. There's a heck of a lot of less neurons up there than there used to be as far as I can tell. You know, That's decay. They're not coming back. I'm not getting a resupply on those neurons. You get a certain number, that's what you start with. They're good for a while and then they're not quite as good. And just to sit with that, wow, yeah. Okay, we know this birth, aging, decay, and ultimately it comes to an end. It just can't sustain. It doesn't go forever. Death. And of course, being sensitive, feeling beings, we encounter this in a way that's not easy sometimes and the Buddha spoke of it he spoke of sorrow pain grief lamentation and despair again it sounds like oh gosh really we have to go into this we have to think you know it's like that wasn't mentioned on the description of the retreat nobody said come along you know you too can have sorrow pain grief lamentation and despair you know it would really fill fill up you know be great marketing wouldn't it and yet there's something about this, a kind of almost relief and just name it. Yeah, we know these things. You do and I do. If we have a heart, we'll encounter this. And the, you know, the Buddha went on to speak about our mind, the sense of what it's like to be associated with that which we dislike, to be separated from that which we like and love, and to not get what we want. Mm. It's annoying. And it's painful to us to not get what we want. This is inevitable. There's no way around this for us as human beings. It's not just you. And you know, we can have this idea and it's pernicious, it's deeply rooted. It's part of our shared cultural fantasy. Fairy tale perhaps, that speaks to this childish part of us or childlike maybe would be a better way to put it, that just wishes things would be a fairy story and happily ever after. But if you imagine, and we might have this idea that if it had just been the way it could have been or should have been, if I'd just done it right and if everybody else had just done it right, which would have, of course, required everybody else before them to have done it right, but if that could have happened, it would have just been right. It's not possible. And I'll say it simply if I can here, why that's so, 
or one way that makes that apparent to me that this is so. If you love something in this life or someone, at some point you'll be parted from them. Through accident, through illness, through death, through choice or happenstance. If you love something or someone in this life, at some point you will be parted from them. And that will hurt. That will be painful. That will be grievous and tender if we've loved something. In direct proportion to the sweetness, the delight and the deliciousness of the connection, we feel the pain, the loss, the grief of the separation. They both have their place in what it means to love. And you know, if you don't love something or someone in this life, that will be painful, that will be grievous, that will be hard to bear. And I've never managed to think or figure out a third option there. If someone figures one out, let me know. But if you love something, you will feel the pain of losing it or someone at some point. They or you will have to leave in some way or form. And if you don't, well, that will hurt too. And what that says is, okay, this is part of the nature of our experience. It's not because you did something wrong. It's not because there's something wrong with you. It's not because the world did something wrong or there's something wrong with the world. Oh, it's part of what it means to have this remarkable capacity to care and to connect that we have as human beings. And so this practice asks us to open into what's here to feel into this body, this heart, this mind, to get to know what's tender, what's difficult. Equally to be open to feel what's sweet and what's lovely when it comes along. Often they start to open up together and there can be moments of sweetness and moments of tenderness or periods of time when we might feel like it's all really hard and difficult. And then we find ourselves in a place where it feels more spacious or open or we just see the beauty around us more clearly than we have done because we've allowed ourselves to feel the tenderness too. And they kind of somehow come together. To feel into our body, to sometimes ask, you know, what do I feel? Where do I feel it? Can I be with this? Can I make, what does it need? Sometimes it needs space. You can just kind of see how much space does it need. Sometimes it needs kindness and just like, oh, oh wow, yeah. Just acknowledging that this is difficult for me. That's a kindness to the experience, to oneself. Just to not be left alone. Sometimes what our difficult places need is to not be left alone. Because every time we've come near them, we've moved away. And it's like, oh, what if I didn't move away? Don't have to fix it. Sometimes just a case of spending a little time there. That's our offering. And sometimes we might know ourselves if we're in a difficult place. We're not necessarily looking for someone else to fix it for us, but it would be really nice if they'd just be with us while we were there. It's the same on the inside. And to notice how we might think that that's what I need to do for it to make it go away. If I can just be really nice to it, it'll go away. That's what they're telling me. This is the methodology. This is the technology for making it go away. Be really kind to it. Be really nice to it. And of course it doesn't work like that. 
as Ramdas said. You know, you can't be with something in order for it to go away because it knows. Of course, it's, it's us, isn't it? It's not something else. And actually, if we're being with it for it to go away, that's aversion. That's actually another form of rejection, another form of unwillingness. As if you went to see a friend sometime. The friend said, oh, how lovely to see you. Can you leave as soon as possible? Hmm, there's a mixed message here. It might be, oh, actually I'm busy right now, but, uh, you know, if you want to spend a bit of time, that's all right. We don't have to drop everything every time to be in that place. But something about giving space to what's here. Because what we discover as we do that is that the sense of connection that can come even through meeting with and making space for something that's not easy for us, that that connection is actually something we value, that's precious, that we treasure and are deeply moved by. In fact, the suffering we associate with difficult experience is not inherent in the experience. It's because we experience it together with a withdrawal and a disconnection. And we imagine those two things as the same, but actually they're just laminated to each other by habit and history. And they're not the same thing. The disconnect and the discomfort, the pain, the distress are separate. But they happen together so long as we're unconscious of what's going on. And as we become conscious, we realize, oh, I cannot disconnect and be present with the discomfort or distress, the pain. Then we see that so much of the suffering in what was there was in the disconnect, not in the experience itself. And we also start to see that what we have feared about being with the difficult, which is that it will overwhelm us or we'll get stuck in it, or stuck with it, that this isn't what happens when we meet it in this way. Initially it might get bigger and we might find it scary because it's like, just a moment, (coughs) (coughs) it's like the last thing we want is those uncomfortable places to get bigger. And often we're trying to squeeze them to keep them small in our body, literally. And if we start to relax that pressure on them, they might expand. But the interesting thing is, if you have a bunch of energy in a confined space, it creates pressure and intensity. And often the feeling of overwhelm is connected with that sense of pressure and energy or experience in a confined space. As you take the pressure of it, as we learn to relax that habitual mechanism of tightening, it might initially seem like this is getting bigger or louder or stronger. That might be the apparent experience. But actually if we stay with that, what we see is that as we give it more space, the intensity reduces. The same amount of energy in a really big space doesn't create pressure at all. It's just vibration. And so we actually learn to access the sense of space around us, the sense of ground beneath us. Because actually having that larger space takes or it kind of it dissolves the impact of that mechanism of contracting and intensifying that otherwise happens, that reinforces the idea that I can't handle it. And we start to say, oh, I can. I am. And it's 
It might not be comfortable or pleasurable, but it's okay. And there's a deeper sense of well-being that comes in the trust, in the learning and the developing and the trusting our capacity to hold our life consciously with sensitivity and care. And it starts to be able to move because we're not holding it so tightly, because we're not pushing it away or pushing ourselves away from it, in fact. It starts to reveal its nature. There's a poem by Wendell Berry. He writes, I go amongst trees. I go amongst trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. So we have the situation where we have chosen to go and sit quietly, to put our tasks to one side, to just sit in the space of our life. And naturally, inevitably, into that comes some of what we find scary. But if we can sit with it and see that we can meet this too, we start to enter into relationship with it. Rather than being disconnected, rather than it being something done to me, we see actually this is something happening within a larger field that I've previously conceived or understood. It sings and I hear its song. We start to be able to listen with compassion to our life and to the life of each other and our world which has many places that call for our caring, our attention, that may need healing, that may need support, that may need some further care and input and engagement with in our life. Absolutely. But do we start from that place of just hearing it, listening? And as we listen, we see that it's fluid and our fear of it becoming stuck or it somehow defining who we are, that I am this or this is me, the suffering, this pain, this distress, that that's actually just not the truth. The stuckness is actually constructed out of our resistance to it. It's like the only way we can resist it is by holding on to it to try and stop it moving. And the very holding on to it creates the sense of actually it being me. When in fact it's simply what's passing through the space of our life. And we can start to become sensitive, to become more conscious that the, the very nature of what it is that we are is something permeable. is something that's touched, that is inevitably affected, but actually allows things to pass through when we don't resist, when we don't fight against that. It's like the front door of the heart is always open. Even when we close down, we still feel things, but they kind of get trapped inside. And so the process of opening is one is actually, in a way, of opening the second door. So things that come in 
are allowed to be felt and then can move. It's an immense offering of kindness to inhabit our life unconditionally, to inhabit our experience unconditionally. And it's really the foundation of peace, of knowing a true and abiding peace in our life. Not becoming dependent on controlling or manipulating experience. Not a kind of peace that we can only have when all the difficult things have been removed or avoided. But a peace that trusts us, trusts in our capacity to be connected, to stay connected, and to reconnect even in the midst of that which is most difficult for us. That we can learn this capacity. And in that connecting, in that sense of the life that we are meeting, that we're encountering moment after moment, we start to perhaps have a sense of this life moving, this life moving through something that is vast, that is open, and that in its nature is not carried by that movement, that is not bound to that movement, and yet is not separate from that movement. This life is vast enough to hold all of the pain and all of the joy. There's room for it to move in the space of our life. And we don't have to make this happen. We need to learn to release our habitual reactions and tendencies to resist it. But as we do so, it naturally reveals itself, its life, its flow, and its precious offering to us. And so this journey, when we see it and understand it, is a journey of opening, and that's one of the ways we can understand it. It brings us into this, this, this territory of openness to know what is it to be an open space. A conscious open space. That in trusting there is ultimately nothing which can take us from this. Nothing which has in itself the power to remove us from this. Nothing upon which we depend in order to have access to this. Beyond this itself. In this there is a profound coming to rest. Coming to rest in the midst of a life that keeps moving and flowing, revealing its beauty and its sweetness, equally as its tenderness and its challenges. And that invites us again and again to come more deeply in to this, to live more fully in this. So let's have a few moments sitting quietly together.
So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we, may we come to rest deeply in this vast open space that can receive all things. And may we find the courage and the kindness to touch and be touched by that which we do not find easy. and to open our hearts to the vastness and beauty of this life, just as it is. To come to rest in this, for our own welfare, and for the welfare of all beings, and of all of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.